Okay, so last week we're going to kind of recap real, real quick, but there's a couple of things that we talked about the book of Revelation. First of all, it comes from the word apocalypse, and we talked about that. It means the apocalypse, the end of time. We think apocalypse, we think of this, this detrimental explosion, all of that, because we've associated what the end times is going to bring, but really what it's talking about is the revelation, the revealing of the end time. That's what apocalypse truly, truly means. And so it's this, this end of the present age where Jesus is going to come back, he's going to set up his global empire, uh, you know, all of these different things, this millennial reign on the earth, this thousand-year reign that it's going to go into and all of that. When we look at the Bible as a whole, and this is where we've got to start from and to get an understanding of what's going on, is that it consists of 66 books that's written by 40 authors, okay, over several thousand years, probably, you know, right around 2,000 years. And so you've got to catch on to what's happening because it's this, what we call an integrated message system. And that is something that was used, especially during World War II, that they would use. They send messages, but it had bits and pieces of everything hidden throughout these wavelengths of how they would send it. That way, if one piece of it got captured and removed, the message still made sense. So in other words, there's the theme of the redemption. In Genesis, we have paradise lost. In Revelation, we have paradise regained. Everything in between is how God did it. And so it's all in there. It's all leading up to the Messiah. And so if you took one book out of the Bible, you could still come to the same conclusion without having it there. Not that we would do that, obviously, but that's what I mean about this integrated message. It's supernatural. And that's the second thing that we've got to keep in mind, is that however this thing was put together, you can demonstrate very simply that the origin is outside of our dimensions of space and time and how we see things. Because we look at things very literally. You know, yesterday's going to be like tomorrow and, and the next day and all of that kind of stuff. But God is above that seeing it all, and he is revealing that to us. And it's no more true anywhere else than it is the book of Revelation. When we see what God's going to do in the future, in the things to come. And so the central theme is the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. That's really the theme, because God used men to bring forth the Messiah. The New Testament is about a man. Of course, that man be, being Jesus. That, that's who it is. He is the fulfillment of everything that Israel went through, and the reason they went through it to bring him into this world. It is the creator of mankind stepping into history. It's the central event to all of time. Because you think about it, there's a reason you have the whole B.C. A.D. thing, and it revolves around Christ's birth. Now, that doesn't mean the timing is perfect, but that was the premise, is that that is why it revolves around him. And he died to purchase us new life. And so the privilege that you and I possess is the fact that we have a relationship with God that's completely different and was unknown to those of the Old Testament time. So we are very privileged, and that really is what the Bible about is about. So the bottom line is, is, when we look at this, is that God means what he says, and he says what he means, right? There's so many, and Jim and I were talking about this earlier this evening, is that there's, you know, he said there's 47 different views on the book of Revelation, where it's going and how it's happening and all of that, who's right and who's wrong. Well, the reality is, is that, first of all, the book is Revelation. It should be more clear than that. And a lot of times what happens is people try to interpret events inside of Scripture instead of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, which might shine light on the different events. Does that make sense? In other words, we're reading it through these filters and these lenses of which that with these presuppositions that we have. So that's number one. God says what he means, and he means what he says. The second part of that is that the Bible is an integrated whole, and every detail is there by design. It's not the Old Testament Versus the New Testament. One of the arguments I get when I'm talking to people who don't necessarily believe in Scripture is why is God so mean in the Old Testament and He's the God of love in the New? You got the God of judgment, you got the God of mercy. Well, that's not true. It's the same God. So everything is integrated from beginning to end, and no part of it is trivial. All of it is there for our learning. Every comma, every period, every number has a purpose, and it was put there by God, by the Holy Spirit. And then the most important thing that we can remember is that God is his own interpreter. We use scripture to interpret scripture. <clears throat> Acts 17.11, this is Paul. He said, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, that they received the word with all readiness of mind. Should be mind there, but it's a typo on my part. Sorry about that. And searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. In other words, 
It is, you take it for what it's worth. You listen intently, but don't just take somebody's word for it. Go home, examine the scriptures, and see if the things that were said are true. I stress that all the time. I don't care who's in the pulpit on Sunday morning, who's sitting up here Wednesday night. Scripture must be our guide. And if it doesn't line up, then we throw it out. And then I showed you this chart last week, and I'm going to go through this just real briefly. This is a lot nicer than my chicken scratch that you guys had to put up with. So I put this together for you. I, I'm going to attempt to do a PowerPoint for you guys every single week, okay? I think it's a lot easier to understand it. It's a visual. It's in front of you and all of that. I cannot promise it because it is extremely time-consuming. But there are basically three essential views, the amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial view. Amillennial with an offshoot of something called preterism, which is a basically there's two folks. Amillennial does not believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. It is just figurative language. It is an analogy. It is something along that line. Preterism believes that after destruction of the temple was the start of the tribulation. Christ coming to the earth in the first time was the start of the figurative thousand years. That's an arbitrary number. It's not a literal thousand-year reign. Post-millennial believe that Jesus is going to return at the end of this millennium. They believe the same thing that it started when he was here the first time. So again, it's a figurative number. It's not, it's not you know, a literal thousand years. But once the church has done their job to evangelize the world, that the Old Testament laws are going to come back into play and the world is going to begin to follow them, then Jesus will return. And that is something that they call reconstructionism. You might see another term called theonomy. Okay, a lot of your Reformed churches would kind of fall into that camp. And then the premillennial view, which is that Jesus is going to return to earth prior to the start of the millennium. They accept that it is a literal thousand-year reign. There's two versions of that, historical and dispensational. The biggest difference is historical believes that the church is the, uh, is the fulfillment of Israel, where dispensational believes that Israel has its own destiny, it has its own origin, it's separate, and the church, the same thing. Different calling. This is where we typically fall. Dispensational premillennial. Now, over here, as I told you guys last week, probably 9 out of 10 of your mainline denominational churches will fall into this range. And I gave you kind of a list of them, a rough overshoot. More so here. This one, since about the early 1900s, it got to the point where there was just too much stuff going on that kind of debunked this thought that they, it's kind of fallen short. It no longer necessarily believe it. Some of your real staunch Reformed churches, um, the, the Calvinistic churches, if those terms make any sense to you at all, still hold on to some of this stuff, but for the most part, this is not what it once was. This is the stuff you're going to see online, on TV, nine times out of ten. This is most of your mainline denominational churches. Okay. We come out of this, out of the premillennial offshoot, then you get the idea of the rapture, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, which basically means the tribulation, which is a seven-year period. Does it happen... Uh, is the church raptured before that happens, in the middle of it, or after it's over? And there's good scholars on all three sides of those. They can all make a case. And the reality is, guys, no matter which camp you would put yourself in, there are holes that are tough to explain and tough to fill in all of them. Okay? So for me personally, I'm dispensational premillennial and I lean free trip. I'm not married to it. I'm not dogmatic on it. Um, I really don't care if somebody agrees with me or disagrees. This is not a salvation issue. This is not something we're splitting over. Now, what you see here, remember the term hermeneutics, which is basically how we interpret Scripture, is if you lean more towards the allegorical side, you're going to be on this side of the aisle. And if you lean more to the literal side, you're going to be on this side of the aisle. And I get asked several times through the years, and I get asked frequently, do you take the Bible literally? And I respond that I take the Bible seriously. And what I mean by that is the allegorical parts, which there are some, that I take it as such. There's different types of languages that are used. I take the literal parts as such. It's pretty easy to break that down. So in other words, I try not to read stuff into Scripture. I want Scripture to be my guide. So that all makes sense to kind of overview that. I know not everybody was here last week, but that's kind of a rushed version. So it gives you an idea of the different things that are going on. So basically what we look at is we look at the book of Revelation as a prophetic book. It is a futurist view. We'll get into that here in a little bit more uh, in, a, in a little bit. Now, the Old Testament, and this is why we say the prophecy is Christ literally returning in thousand-year reigns. There are 1,845 references in the Old Testament to Christ's literal rule on the earth. He did not rule on the earth when he came. 
the first time. That tells us it has to be a future event. So it, it puts a, a, a hole in the idea that that's a figurative language because his, his first coming to the earth, there were thousands of scriptures that talk about that as well. But the bottom line is, is that that was not a figurative event. It was a literal event in time. Okay, 17 of the Old Testament books give prominence to the event. In the New Testament, of uh, the 216 chapters that are there, there are 318 references to his second coming. And 23 of the 27 books is talked about. And so this is what we're talking about. You know, it is, he's setting us up for something, not this figurative language. There's something that's going to happen. For every prophecy that's relating to his first coming, there are eight relating to his second. Okay? So there's a lot yet to come. You guys following me on all of that? It's a lot of information. So let me show you this. When we look at the outline of the first chapter, here's how it works. Whoop. And the outline of the first chapter is you can basically break it into five spots. You've got the introduction, which we're going to get into here momentarily. Then you get into the salutation, the greetings, and things like that. That's probably all we're going to have time for tonight, uh, if we have time for all of that. Then in 12 through 18, you get into the vision of Christ. In 19, it gives you an outline of the entire book, and I'll show you that when we get there. And then in, in verse 20, it's preparing you for chapters 2 and 3, which deals specifically with the seven churches. And we'll talk about those here in a little bit. So, let's jump into verse chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God given to him to show unto his service things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and all that he saw. Now, the first question is, whom was this revelation given to? It's given to Jesus. It's, who is the him? God given to him is referring back to Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him. Okay? To show unto his service things which must shortly come to pass. Now, this shortly, what do you think that means? I think it's the revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ. It is. It's the, that's saying the exact same thing. You're just using different words. It is the revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ, but the Father gave it to the Son. It's, I mean, you're saying it the same way. And we always call it the revelation of John, which it is. John is the messenger that's going out and getting it. But we've got to keep in mind what this is giving. So, now on that word, shortly, what do you think that means? Well, I mean, when you hear that, it's it, which things which must shortly come to pass. Soon. Soon, yeah. Soon, right. That's what we would naturally think, but that's actually not what it means. When you break it down, it means that once it starts, it's going to happen quickly. So it's an infinite amount of time. Now, John would know that, but John honestly was expecting it in his generation. Okay? When we talk about this word in the, the revelation or the apocalypse, the apocalypto, however you want to say it, this screams to you guys, it should jump you back into Daniel too, because the exact same words are used. With Nebuchadnezzar, God shows him the future and all of that kind of thing. Showing the things that would come. It says, in the latter days, these things will come. Now, John's going to know that. Right? We're not necessarily thinking about Daniel 2, but it is showing him. He realizes that this thing is going to happen. And when it comes shortly, what this means is that when it starts, it's going to move fast, which is no doubt. Because no matter what view you take on the other thing, with pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all that kind of stuff, I mean, once it begins, it's going to go. So when we think of shortly, like, how can it be shortly? It's been 2,000 years and it still ain't coming. Well, that's not what he's talking about. It's a different use. This is King James language, okay? And he said, and signified it by his angel. Now, what do we think of when we hear the word signified? Guaranteed. Guaranteed, okay, kind of. Some of us think it shows, but signifying that means it's going to render it into signs by his angel, Right? So in other words, there are going to be signs of this thing coming, signs of this event, things to watch for. Okay? That's what he, he's setting all of this up. This is the introduction to the letter. It's all being set up. Now think about other things. Remember when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, 
And he started crying and he said, Woe to you, Jerusalem. You know, you did not recognize me when I come. There were signs leading to the first coming that they should have recognized, right? And so they get judged. And the reason that the temple is destroyed in 70 AD is a result of them not recognizing the Messiah when he came. Jesus says that specifically. But this is the same kind of thing, that there will be signs that say, by his angel, and you're going to see angels involved in this process as we get into it, unto his servant John. So this is the recipient of the message. But the revelation or the revealing is father to son. You guys see how that works? So that's important to understand because when we talk about, and this is where we get a little bit confused, there are basic units when we talk about how we express ideas. There's the alphabet, which is a written language. We use letters or shapes, depending on where we are, that express an idea, and we know what they mean. There's something called phonemes, which is sound, okay? You know sounds, right? I mean, when you we have a little one, he makes different sounds that we're able to pick up on. It's, it's a communication thing. There's another thing called pixels, which are small little particles of an image. They put them all together, you've got a great image. But there's something more that's called semnemes, S-E-M-E-M-E-S. I'll write that down. If this, you can read my handwriting better than you can understand my words. Semnemes, okay? And this has to do with the meaning or a mark or something. Okay, this word semeno is where this comes from, is used 4,591 times in scripture. So it's used frequently. What it's talking about is to give a sign, to signify, to indicate, to make known. That's what it's talking about, to signify to. Okay? So in other words, there's going to be signs of this happening. Right? Now, most of us in here have read through the book of Revelation at one time or another, and so you know those things are coming, right? We're going to get to those eventually. But, you know, it, it's important that we understand these words, and we don't assume that we know what the meanings are. We've got to be careful, so read it slowly, and I say that a lot. Let's jump into verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it. For this time is near. Now, this is interesting. Name one other book in the Bible that is claiming some sort of specialness that to the reader, you read it and there's a special blessing for you. Think of any other book. Is there an example of that in Scripture? No, there's not. So this book is claiming I'm special. And it says to those who hear the words and those who read the words. Now, why? that's interesting. Because why does it say it like that? And I'm asking because I want to get you guys involved, so it's not me doing all talking. Why does it say a special blessing to those who read it and to those who hear it? Maybe not everybody can read so that they hear it from God. And that's exactly it. And again, this is a lot of times, so that's very good that you picked up on that. Is remember, the first level of hermeneutics is this is written to a specific group of people. Who were those people? The seven churches, right? And we'll see that here in a little bit. But the bottom line is, is in that time period, A, not everybody could read, all right? And, and the other thing is, is these things were written down, and not everybody had a copy. They did not have Xerox machines. They couldn't just run a copy for them. So everything was handwritten. So when they would gather together in their assemblies, these things would be read aloud. And sometimes that's all they would get is that. And so when it was the blessing for the reader and for the hearer. So what does that tell us? It covers everybody, right? But it's not just the hearing. Or the reading. Look at the next part. And keeps those things which are written in it. Right? So it's not a matter of just reading and hearing it. We've got to be doing it. That is true all the way across the board in Scripture. Okay? This isn't something that is new. So this blessing here is very common in the Old Testament and Jewish literature. Because it implies that the hearers are expected to understand and obey what they hear. That's the reality. Also... Is the book of Revelation prophecy of things to come? Well, it tells us that it is. Words of this prophecy. Now, this is written somewhere in the, we, we think, 96 AD-ish. Somewhere in that range. We don't know for sure because he didn't date it. But, but the reality is, is that in order for this to be kind of something we can go back to, this is written after some of the events that they're claiming that this addresses. So it would be written in advance, which takes it away. That word prophecy there is a big, you know, something that should jump out at us, right? 
Okay? So there's no question that what this is. Now, I handed you a piece of paper. Okay? I, I'll, I'll give you this one here in just a minute there, Gibber. Um, last week I talked briefly about hepatic structures, which is groupings of seven. And so I wrote out some of these for you guys that they're in uh, uh, the different sevens and things that you see, the seven churches, seals, trumpets, bowls, all that. And you can go through this. This is just something I keep it in your Bible while we're doing this. Uh, it's a lot easier than me trying to write this out. But we've just come across one of them. If you look on the back of it, it's, it says the seven Beatitudes. This is the first one. And it shows you all seven of them there. When we come across them, we'll talk about them. But blessed is he that read and made and ate here and keep those things. Okay? Think about, you know, same thing in the all of the discord in the, the, you know, Jesus teaching. Blessed is he who, blessed is he who. It's kind of this beatitude type thing, okay? So you see a lot of that going on. But there's a lot of groupings of sevens. Okay? Now, John calls this word prophecy, as we talked about, six different times. So, I would say John knew what he was talking about. We should argue with the author of the book. You know, people try to do that an awful lot. Was he going to vote? Okay. Alright. So, now we're coming out of the, the this introduction. We're going to jump into verse 4. Now, uh, the salutation and things like that. Alright, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth under him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Okay, question number one. Who is the letter from? Jesus. Well, ultimately, yes, but, but specifically here in this passage, it's from John, right? Now, it says to the, who's the letter to, would be the next question. It's the seven churches, specifically. Remember, that tells us that we need to put ourselves in their shoes, because we need to understand why these seven churches. And we're going to talk about that more later on. But the bottom line is, is that there's something to this. Now, these churches, it says, uh, which are in Asia. Now, we've talked about this all through the book of Acts. Do not let that confuse you. We're not talking about the East and Asia. This would be modern-day Turkey, really the western two-thirds of it. Okay? This whole continent and whatnot was founded for the Roman Empire in 129 B.C. That's when this all started to come together. But here we get, we see another seven, right? Seven churches. Now, remember, John lived in Ephesus, this is where he got picked up. This is where he was rested. This is where he was taken from to the island of Patmos. He was over the churches there, the seven churches. So when it comes from him, they know who he is. That's why he puts his name in there as many times as he does, because he is expressing, this is from me. This is, there was a lot of false writings going on back then. Okay? There are things called pseudopigrapha, where they would write in the name of somebody else. So you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas as an example. It's not a canonical book. It, when we say pseudopigrapha, that means somebody is claiming the name of somebody important to get it read. Thomas being one of those guys. You see, there's no pseudo. Okay, you guys are following me on that. All right. So, these seven cities are in Western Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, he says, grace be under you in peace. Now, when we think about this, this is the identical greeting that Paul gives and that Peter gives really throughout all, to all the churches with the exception of the writings of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. But when we look at this, grace is a Greek term for charis, and it's an introduction that they would be familiar with. But peace is shalom. So he's saying, you know, grace and peace. You guys see that? So you're dealing with the Greek mind, and you're also dealing with the Hebrew mind. They're both introductions are there. The churches would have been very familiar with this. Okay? And then it says, to him which is, which was, and which is to come. Now, who do you think that's talking about? Jesus. Well, the problem is, is that later on, it says, which are before us are, and from Jesus Christ. So it can't be Jesus, because the language doesn't allow for that. So who is this? I'm going to say it's the Father. I'm going to say it's the Father. Okay? Now, let's look at this here. I put a chart up here. 
I didn't make copies of this for all you guys, but I put it up there. And I can print something like this off for you guys if you guys want to have it. But you notice this past present, who, him which is, which was, and which is to come. Okay? It's three tenses. And you see that uh, in a lot of places. And here, and I, I'm speculating, which was, which is, which is to come, that this is the Father. And these are some scriptural references that refer to that kind of concept. Okay? And Jesus, you got him called, and they said, you gave him the title. The faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Okay? Again, you've got a, he was the faithful witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He will be the king of the earth. You guys see how, how that kind of works? Unto him that, he said he, that he loved us, that he washed us from our sins in his blood, and made us kings and priests. This hasn't happened yet. But it's going. This is happening daily, right? And then that he loved us. This points back to the crucifixion. And then he tells them to write, tells John to write, this is in verse 19, which we're not there yet, but the things which thou hast seen were things which are, and the things which shall be. Again, pointing to the whole point is that he is specifically saying there are things yet to come, giving credence to the whole idea that this is a prophetic book. This is why we struggle so much with the amillennial view, because it's not consistent. But you see the idea of past, present, and future. Now here's something I don't have. But when we talk about salvation, and maybe you've heard this before, but the idea that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Have you heard that terminology? There's three tenses to salvation, okay? So let me explain this. When we talk about that we have been saved, this means that we are, been, we are positionally placed right with Christ. In other words, we're justified, right? We are saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? You see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You see that in several other places. But this is what we would call justification, that we have been saved. That we are being saved means that we have been saved from the power of sin. Right? Sin no longer has a hold over a believer that is filled with the Holy Spirit. He has the ability to now overcome. This is what we call sanctification. And you can read Romans 6 talking about that. But it's this operational power of the Holy Spirit is moment by moment we're being sanctified and being made into the image of God, that we are his imagers, we represent him, right? And then the shall be saved is that we will be saved from the presence of sin after Jesus returns and we're removed and sin is no more and Lucifer is gone and all of that, now we are in this future tense that's called the redemption of the body, right? You guys following me on Does that make sense? Have some of you heard that before or is this all new to you guys? Okay, okay. Do, do I need to go over that again, or does that make sense? Because I don't want to lose you with that. But this is, I mean, it's, it's constantly seen as past, present, and future tense. It's this threefold uh, mission. Now, here's another thing that's interesting, and this is stuff that we got to watch out for. Who is the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth? This is talking about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. So, these are all identifiers of Jesus, Right? These are titles of Jesus. That means that when we see these further on in the book of Revelation, then we need to be on the lookout for those things, right? So we know specifically who that's talking about. So the, we talk about the Father, him who was, which is, and which is to come. We see Jesus Christ and then the three titles that it gives for him, right? But then you've got this odd one, the seven spirits, which are before his throne. Now, there's a lot of debate over what these are, and there's confusing. In fact, I'm anybody have a conjecture on what these might be? You say Holy Spirit, okay? Yes, sir. Okay, but you would say Holy Spirit. You would agree. Anybody else hold a different view? That's good. You guys are smart. Well, let me show you some of what these different things, because some, some people think, that these seven spirits, okay, are the seven archangels that are in Revelation chapter 8. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and then were given seven trumpets. And they try to connect the dots here with that. But there's a problem with that. When we go back to this verse, is that word spirits there is pneuma. Okay, now you remember when I talked about eschatology, which is the study of end time? Remember when I said pneumatology? Study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is spirit. Now, that is also used just for the word spirit. It's not necessarily referring to the Holy Spirit. So, But spirits and angel are not interchangeable. Okay? So, as you said, this is an idiom of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, 
how many times does the Old Testament give an analogy or a quote back, or the Revelation to quote back to the, the New Testament, the Old Testament? Okay, let's start that again. The book of Revelation looks back to the Old Testament and references over 800 times. I'm not even going to put it in question anymore because I butchered it. Okay? So, when you get here into Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 2, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And we know this is referring to Jesus. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now look, and again, you can put this this way. You've got the spirit of the Lord, which is going to rest upon him, which we see happen, right? We see it in all four Gospels. You've got the spirit of wisdom. You've got the spirit of understanding. You've got the spirit of counsel. You've got the spirit of might. You've got the spirit of knowledge, and you've got the spirit of the fear of the Lord. How many does that equal? Seven. Seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Ding, ding, ding. Jim and Janet get a cookie. Congratulations. They nailed Do you know how many people miss that? I mean, it's, it's astronomical. Because what happens, and again, this is where we've got to be careful. We cannot read into the text. And the book of Revelation is the most difficult to decipher because if you've ever studied it once, you've heard a million different opinions on it. And if you left, read the Left Behind series, you already have a warped view on the book of Revelation. Those are great novels, and they're, but they were not intended. They were intended to be great novels, not a study guide to the book of Revelation. Okay? Good books. Amy read them and loved them. I've never actually read them. I know a lot of people. You read them and loved them. I know a lot of people have. And they're great books. There's nothing wrong with them. But we shouldn't be looking to take truth from that. We've got to use scripture, right? You guys follow me on that? Okay. So, now here's what's really interesting. When you put this together, assuming that that is the Holy Spirit, what do you see? You see the Father. You see the Son. You see the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity expressed here in the book of Revelation, chapter verse 4. Good stuff, isn't it? That was worth the price you paid to come tonight, wasn't it? It was. Well, be sure to get you your check. Okay, let's jump into verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, John here is kind of finishing his salutation, if you will, his, his introductory, his niceties and all of that. But we see the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. And I already told you that those are titles of Jesus, right? But again, we can't just assume everything. Now, here's pretty clear, right? We don't have to go scouring the Bible to try to figure out what those are, because John just told us what they are, right? But if you find these in the Old Testament, in Psalm Chapter 89, in verse 27, it says, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And jump down to verse 37. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Another place, Isaiah 55 and verse 4. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Now the context of the Psalms here is that David as the anointed king, or, or somebody uh, from David as anointed king, who will reign over his enemy, and David's seed will be established in his throne forever. That's the context. These are messianic. Now that faithful witness refers to the moon. Does the moon ever go away? No. In other words, it's always there. It's a faithful witness of these things. So it is giving us, again, as a sign, signifying something to us here. But John is comparing this to the unending reign of David's seed to the throne. So we see this as, again, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. John views Jesus as the Davidic king whose death and resurrection have resulted in this eternal kingship. Now, don't let the firstborn part confuse you. Mormons try to take that and say, well, you see that he was the firstborn. And they, they use a passage out of creation. But this isn't talking about firstborn as in born. But what was something with the firstborn in the Old Testament? Right? They were the rightful heir. All things. They were, the, they were the right. It's the same thing. It's this privileged position. It's a result of him being resurrected from the dead. Now let's look at Psalm 89. Okay? And I'm going to try to keep up with this. Okay. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
My mercy I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk my, in my judgment, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break or alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. John is making a connection to this Davidic covenant, this promise that was given to David that his seed will sit on the throne for eternity. It's referring to Jesus, okay? Here's another one, Psalm chapter 2. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Again, you see the same idea. We'll even pull this one out of the New Testament, Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You guys see how this is all pointing back. It's all coming together. Old Testament, even the New Testament, the theme is still there. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Those things are titles of Christ. Okay? I want to make sure that's clear. Then it says that it washed, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now we know what that means, but really, what is this an allusion to? It's an allusion to Christ's priestly function. Because what is he? In the Old Testament, the priests would sanctify or they would atone for Israel. They would sprinkle the blood of these, these sacrificial animals. And so under this ritual law in the Old Testament, that this sacrifice would be on the day of the atonement, would free Israel from their sins. And so the Jewish people, after they've been freed from Egypt, they would take the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and they would enact all of this. And the day of atonement comes forth, the one time a year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would go in there and he would atone for the sins. Well, what does Hebrew tell us? Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, who is our mediator, is explaining who this was, that he was the perfect offerer of the sacrifice, and he was the perfect offering. Where the priests had to atone for themselves first, Jesus was perfect in all his ways. So he was the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. He is the great high priest. This washed in his blood, again, is an illusion to the office, the function of Jesus as that. And you should think back to Isaiah 53, because nothing makes it more clear than this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressor. transgressor excuse me. So what's he talking about? I mean, we know what this is, but Jesus took our place. He was the perfect offer and perfect offer. John is alluding back to the promises of the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New. He is pointing to Jesus. You guys see how that works? Have I lost anybody? Okay. Then he says that it made us kings and priests. Now this is going to be a big thing in chapters 4 and 5 when we get there. But the promise, um, this really looks back again to the Old Testament, that God called the Israelites on Mount Sinai to be a nation of kings and priests, right? It's Exodus chapter 19. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And Peter sees it a fulfillment of that. In 1 Peter 2, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I mean, the promise that to fulfill Christ for all believers, it's, it's this Jew and Gentile together, it's the fulfillment. So he, again, he's making all of these connections. When we read it, we don't. And most of the time, it's because we don't know our Old Testament real well. But think about what the priests were. They were the intermediary between man and God. And Christ now fulfills this role as the high priest. And because of that, 
you and I enjoy basically unfettered access to the throne of Christ because he removed the obstacle of sin by doing what we call the penal substitutionary atonement, which simply means that he took our place and died for us a death that we deserve and gave his life for us. And therefore now he sits at the right hand of God. He is the intermediary for us. He mediates for us. He stands between us and God. When God looks at us, he looks through the blood of Christ. When we receive him, he is the high priest in the heavenly temple for all of God's people. Read Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. I mean, it talks about that. You think about it, all through the Old Testament, Israel, okay, the kings would come from the nation of Judah and the priests from Levites, right? They were specific titles, they were specific calling. There are two people specifically listed in the Bible who fulfilled multiple roles. Melchizedek being one, he was the king and the priest. Jesus being the other, who said he, he comes from the order of Melchizedek, but there is a third that will fulfill this, and that is you and I. That is the believers, the, the kings and priests. That's coming. It has not yet happened. Okay? We see how all of that's interconnecting. You see all of the underlying stuff. Remember, this is complicated for us, but think about the mindset of a Jewish person. Put yourself back in that time. They know the Old Testament because it wasn't the Old Testament. It was the Bible. They read it, they heard it every time they were in synagogue, they would read it out loud together, and any time there was a gathering, they would quote it and, and recite it and different things like that. They know exactly what John is referencing here. It takes a little bit more work for you and I, because this wasn't, I, you know, when Raleigh was here, I asked this, when you read the Old Testament, he was a, he's a Jewish missionary, he's a Jewish man. Um, I said, when you read the Old Testament, does it read like a history book, like if we were reading about George Washington? He said, you know, it kind of does. He said, you know what really makes it happen for us? is when we go and visit Israel. And then you see it, and it's like, and for him, it's literal history of his people. For us, I don't know about you, I know I'm part German, but I don't know where we come from. I hope it's a good part of German. So, you know. Anyway, so yeah, let's look at verse 7. I'm bound and determined to get through this. Behold, he is coming with, the, with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, there's a lot of stuff going here, and we're going to unpack this, you know, fairly quickly, but this alludes back to two different portions of the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man, what is the Son of Man? That is the title of Jesus, okay? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Who's the Ancient of Days? We would say that's God the Father. Okay? Now the context refers to the enthronement of the Son of Man over all the nation after God's judgment of the ancient empire. That is the context of Daniel 7. When he said he is coming with clouds, we should, again, their Jewish mind, they would read, they would connect these dots. Let's look at another one. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him whom they pierce. Now what did it just say here in this verse? Okay, It says, uh, every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. This is what it's talking about. Right? It's going back. Yet they will look on me whom they pierce and they will more important. This is again in context. It pertains, or pertains. Zechariah is the end time when God's going to defeat the enemy nations all around Israel. Israel will be redeemed after repenting of the rejection of God and His messenger, okay? the one they have pierced. Who pierced it? It's the Israelites, mm -hmm. right? Now He was pierced for you and I. It was our sins that put Him on that cross. But who acted it out was the nation of Israel. Okay. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter twenty-four. Then the sign of the Son of Man. Wait a minute, we just read that before in Daniel 7. Okay, so we're making a connection there. That's how we know this is Jesus. Will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Right? We see this coming on the clouds. We see it recited over and over in different places. But here's one thing that maybe you've never thought about. How did Jesus exit the earth? Acts chapter 1. Now when he said and spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. It's like the same way he exited 
is the same way he's going to return. Interesting. Now, when he talks about, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is what we call a mirrorism. Okay? I'll write that one down for you. This one's a little easier to spell. Mirrorism. Okay? It's an expression that uses something that's completely contrasting to make a point. So it's indicating totality. It'd be like head to toe or heaven and earth, you know, things like that. Alpha and omega, beginning and end. The alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It's all-encompassing. If this was in Hebrew, we'd say the aleph and the top. If we were in America, we'd say A to Z. And now what do we mean by that? It is all-encompassing. It is, it is covering everything. It's God who transcends time. And he, the entire course of history, he, uh, he is above and he's beginning and the end. But then it says who was, who is, and who is to come. What are we saying again? It's the same thing. It's this mirrorism. It's this idol. It's all-encompassing. This is the same expression when God told Moses, tell them, I am sent you. What does I am mean? There's no beginning. There's no end. Right? It's the exact same thing that Jesus said when the guards came to take him away. You notice how it says, I am he? The word he was at, so it made more sense. He says the exact same thing that God said to Moses. In fact, it was probably Jesus in the burning bush if you want to be technical. But be that as it may. So it's the exact same thing. Who was, who is, and who is to come. It's, it's the same concept. Now, John has said an awful lot. And this is all in his opening breath, guys. I mean, you know, the, the first, we're, we're not even in the verse 9 yet. So let's get into verse 9 here. And he says, I, John, so we need to see him address himself again. Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I've talked about this briefly, but John references himself five times, okay? Why do you think he does that? To make sure they know who the author is. That's one reason, absolutely. But what's the significance of making sure they know it's John? Well, think about it this way. John's the last surviving apostle. He's the last living eyewitness of Jesus Christ. You think his name carries a little bit of weight? Absolutely. And whom these letters are written to, he is over those churches because they are in the area. In the, he was over the churches of, of uh, Western Asia there for 30 years before he got taken to the island of Patmos. And so that's absolutely why I say, hey, guys, this isn't from somebody else. This is me talking. It's an authoritative thing. Now, he says a lot of things because one of the things you need to understand is there's a lot of persecution that's going on at this time, okay? Because Rome no longer sees Christianity as a sect of Judaism. Now, remember, as we were going through Acts, they just, the reason they couldn't find anything wrong with Paul and they didn't want to deal with this is because they thought it was an in-house argument. Like, this Jewish person disagrees with this Jewish person. You guys sell it amongst yourselves. What they, so they considered this sect of Judaism. Well, Rome's no longer looking at it this way. They see it as an illegal religion. And basically, it's a cult, and they need to eradicate it. And that is what's going to happen. There is a lot of persecution that is going on during this time. It's extremely intense. And so one of the things that him writing specifically these churches is that hearing from him would be a big deal. Now, you notice he says, I, John, both your brother and companion. You notice he doesn't say that I am one of the twelve. I'm the last living eyewitness. He uses the word brother. Now, to us, we throw that around kind of loosely, right? This is my brother, you know, brother from another mother, whatever, things like that. But here is the Greek word adelphos, A-D-E-L-P-H-O-S, and it literally refers as if two people born from the same womb. And so what he's doing is he's bringing himself down to the level of his readers. In other words, they are brothers by the blood of Christ. He is not putting himself on the like, how great I am. He said, I'm here with you. But this word actually carries a lot more meaning during the New Testament times than it wouldn't carry today. Because brother was a term that was used during Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great did not have a picture for several years. He was around the 300 B.C. range, but he was the reason Rome is what it is. And so what would happen is... is he would use this term to describe very faithful soldiers. So these were fighting men that would be united together, and they would be fighting the same battles, and they'd handle the same weapons, and they'd win the same wars. And so Alexander, what would happen at the end of these skirmishes, would hold these public conventions, basically, these ceremonies. 
and they would give awards out to these soldiers. And the people that went above and beyond the call of duty, he would bring them up in front of everybody. And he would give this award. He'd stand next to them, and he would essentially hug them, and he would declare that he is uh, proud to be the brother of this soldier. He used the same word, Adelphos. And so now imagine the readers of John who know this. They know that they know the history. They know what's going on. John is saying, I am right there with you. I am your brother in arms, essentially. In other words, we're in this fight together. And he says, companion in the tribulation. Now, this comes from two different words. I probably should have put these up on the screen. This would have been a lot easier than writing them down every time. I'll try to do that for next week. But it, it's, it's, I got to make sure I spell it right. Did I spell that right? I did. 21 books. Yes. So, uh, don't ask me how to pronounce it. Soon, it's, it's, it's putting things to, or the sun part of it, it, it means partnership. And then koinonia means sharing something together. And basically, he's telling them that he shares the same struggles and the same tribulation that they are doing, and all for the kingdom of God. But it's not just persecution like you and I think. Because he says, in the tribulation is the word philpsis, T-H-I-L-P-S-I-S, and this is an excruciating type of stress. It actually refers to torture. And so um, what would happen is the way this word was used is they would lay a man on the table and they would bind his hands and his feet. And they'd hang a big rock above him. And they would want him to confess to a crime. Now whether he did it or not was irrelevant. They'd try to get him to confess. And the longer he wouldn't confess, they would lower that rock until the point that it was on his chest to where he could not move, but he could barely breathe. And eventually they just cut the rope. And, and crushed him. But this is kind of what he was just saying, is that they're experiencing this kind of torture. Okay? Now he said he was in the island called Patmos, and we talked about Patmos a lot last week, of what it was and why I was there. He was a political shoulder. But when he says that I was there, it comes to, this is something that we don't pick up on. You actually got to go to the original language. It comes from the word ginoma. G-I-N-O-M-A-I. But that word was express a shock or an unexpectedness. He's implying the idea that he had absolutely no idea he was going to end up on Patmos. This was not where he was going. And so, I mean, he wasn't expecting her. So there's a lot here. But why why was John on the island? And it tells us here in the verse, it says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Essentially, what they were trying to do is get these Christians to get away from Christianity. And if they refused, they would kill them. Right? Remember, Domitian's in charge here. And he's in that job, and that's why he was there, okay? All right, we're almost done. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, he's... There's four different times you're going to talk about that. I was in the Spirit. But what does that mean to you guys? When you hear that, I was in the Spirit. Any guesses? The Spirit visited him or was upon him or came upon him. Okay. That would be a really good guess. Or he was praying. That would be a good guess as well. These are all things that we would naturally pick up on, absolutely. Yes, sir? Even the Son of God. In the spirit on the Lord's day was there, and part of the ministry of the Lord's coming coming on the day of the Lord. That, that was one thought on that. So, yeah, I don't know the way or not, but that was. Well, what throws us a lot of times, and I don't know if you guys are, but in the King James, is it saying here? That was in the, in the spirit. You see how it's capitalized there? That's what throws us. Because what do we see when we see a capitalized spirit? What do we immediately think of? Holy Spirit. So you would thank prayer in some capacity, or I was seeking the Lord in, in something. But that's really not how it is. It, it, in the Greek, it's in pneumatic, pneuma, right? E-N-P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-C. It means I was in another realm. I was in a dimension. I was in a, a trance-like state. I was in the spiritual realm, something outside. But he says, I was in the Spirit. It's that same word for the word was. In other words, he was not expecting to be there. He was there unexpectedly. So he is surprised by the vision. But here's where the million-dollar question comes. 
It says, on the Lord's day. What is that? Any guesses? You say Sunday. You say Sunday. No, okay. when, when uh, Jesus uh, was Jesus, Jesus resurrected. Okay, that's one guess. I would say it's a day that the Lord had assigned for that purpose. So he's just, he's titling it the Lord's day because that was the day that he had the vision, basically? Okay. That's possible. That's what I said, but it's, it's the Lord, it's, it's not, it's an adjective, the Lord is dead. Okay. No, it's the day that belonged to the Lord. Okay. So it doesn't mean it's a specific day, it's just the day that he was in the spirit to the degree that he received this revelation. Yep. Okay. Those are all possibilities. So I'm going to show you a couple different things, because the reality is, we don't know for sure. Okay, so let's just be honest. First of all, the Lord's Day, you can make an argument, is Saturday the Sabbath. The Sabbath never changed. It was Saturday. A lot of people believe it. It was the established day set aside by God. It happened in the very beginning. God created in six days. Seventh day he rested. That was the start of the Sabbath. So on and so forth. So you can certainly say that. Others say that it is Sunday, that the Lord's Day when they rose. So we can look at Acts chapter 20. They use this as a proof text. Is that now on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. It doesn't say it's the Lord's Day, but that's what they're referencing, kind of. Another one, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. Now, we use this to say, guys, they didn't just meet on Saturdays, they met other days of the week. The first day of the week is just one of them. They actually probably had together almost daily. They were doing life together. Let me read you a couple different writings. These come from some old text. This is from Didache, if I'm saying that right. 14.1, I'll explain what that is in a minute. But And on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be heard. He's reported on the Lord's own day, referring to Sunday. That's what he's talking about there. Now, what is Didache? This is a very controversial book. It claims to have been written by the apostles themselves, and that it was like the work, and it's an instruction book, basically. And they claim that it was written between 70 and 100 AD. I highly doubt it was written by the apostles at all. Um, basically, all I'm using it for, for your example, is it gives the expression and the idea behind it. Is all I'm showing you. It was a common thought. Let me show you another one. This is from Ignatius. It says the letter to the Magnesians. If then those who have walked in the ancient... Oh, man. Sorry. Come back. Okay, sorry. If then those who have walked in the ancient practices attained to the newness of hope, no longer observing Sabbath, but fashioning their lives after the Lord's day, okay, on which our life has also arose through him and through his death, which some men deny, a mystery whereby we obtain unbelief, and for those we endure patiently, that we be found disciples of Jesus Christ, our only teacher. If, be, if this be so, how shall we be able to live a apart from him, seeing that even the prophets being disciples were expecting him as their teacher through the Spirit, and for this cause, he whom they rightly awaited when he came raised them from the dead. Okay, so this is, again, the Lord's Day. Referring to Sunday, it tells us here why this is Ignatius. He's one of the early church fathers. It's an expression that they would be familiar with. But, does that mean that it is what John is referring to? Does it mean that that's where John... Oh, I'm not done. Before you get there, because I think I know where you're going. Let me... Let me land this airplane and we'll get to you, okay? Let me show you one more, which goes more towards what you guys are kind of saying, okay? Now, the word here that's used is kariak, kariakos, K-U-R-I-A-K-O-S. It refers to an imperial day or the emperor's day. It was the first day of the month, and the Roman Empire would celebrate the current ruler, the emperor, all of that. The speculation from this is that this is the day that Jesus revealed himself as the king of kings, one he was on the earth. And therefore, this was known as the Lord's Day that he revealed himself as the king. And so it would be known to the early readers as that. Now, we don't have scriptural references to that expression, but it is something. The reality is, the Lord's Day, we do not know what the day of the week it is. We don't know. It could very well be what you guys said. He could mean Sunday. He could mean Saturday. We don't know. But let me give you one more thing to at least examine. Now, this is my view, and believe it or not, I could not find anybody that said anything that I'm about to show you, which means that I'm obviously in the minority, which means you take it with a grain of salt, because it only scares me if I'm way out there away from everybody else. So I'm sharing it with you. You do not have to adopt it, but I think you'll agree that it makes sense. Let's look at Joel chapter 2. 
It says this verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Let's look at one more. Malachi verse 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the reason I say that is what is the book of Revelation showing us? What's happening before the great and terrible day of the Lord? It's as if John was taken to a future event in the spirit, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. You guys see? That's how why I've come to that conclusion, but I am most certainly, obviously, minority. Now, what did you have to add to that? <laughs> I'm glad I made you wait. I get credit for that, guys. Come on, just teasing. Exactly. So it's no longer a minority view because Jim shares it with me. So there's got to be some credence to it. So, <laughs> so yes, you're, telling, you're oh. telling me that there's only in the whole world here there's two people. No, I couldn't find anybody. Out <laughs> of all the commentaries and resources I looked through, nobody shared it. That doesn't mean they're not out there. Just the ones I looked at didn't, and it shocked me because very rarely, like there are stuff that I'm on the minority view, but I can I know guys that share that view, but this one. I couldn't find anybody. That doesn't mean they're not out there. So, yeah, this is not some half-hashed idea that I came up with. People smarter than me are out there, I'm sure, because if they're not, we're all in trouble. Yoli, did you have something, a question? Yeah, some commentators say the day of the Lord is not the same as the Lord's day. It may not be. It's, yeah, it's not. It, it, I mean, it may, it, and, and when we use the Lord's day, I mean, when it's referenced in early church fathers, they refer to Sunday. And that may be what it is. It may be what you, I'm just sharing it with you guys as a possibility. I mean, we can't deny it's at least a possibility because we're just interchanging some words here on the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. And it makes sense with the overall view of Revelation. So how long has the man been on the I'm sorry, say How long has he been on the John? Uh, he was only there a year, maybe. He wasn't there very long. Well, he gets there, he gets picked up in 93, I believe he gets there in 95 AD, and he gets released in 96 AD. Don't quote me on that, you could be right. So let's say it's three. Well, I'm sure it doesn't have a calendar. So I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that the man knows if it's Shabbat. You, you very well could be right. What I'm really thinking is, it is the day that he was in control by the Holy Ghost. It could be. So it's the Lord's day. Is that what, what uh, what's your guy's name? Christian Parker. <laughs> I'm taking a picture of that. Preaching mom. I tried to pronounce that. So, guys, all that I'm sharing, guys, and again, I'm not trying to sell an idea or anything like that. I just want you to just think about it. It makes sense. And it certainly lines up with the future position of what's going on, because we are literally seeing the great and terrible day of the Lord coming. So, it would make sense. But again, it could be any of this. And as she said, you know, he's out there on an island. Does he know when Shabbat is? Does he know which day of the week it is? I don't We don't know. We can't. Right. We, we can't say one way or the other with with full certainty. I mean, for one, it was such a big deal to him, I would think. Let me go through a couple other quick things, and then we'll get out of here. Okay. First of all, this is, I hear the loud voice as of a trumpet. Again, we should think Old Testament when we hear these things. Okay? Exodus 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and light, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all people who were in the camp Tremble and then jump down to verse 19, and then the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. What was this? This was at the giving of the law. You see this loud trumpet, the voice of God, you see there being interconnected. The Alpha and Omega, we talked about that. It was a common Greek phrase, it refers to timelessness. And then he says, write what you see in a book. Now God often told the Old Testament prophets to do this. I'm just going to give you the references for time's sake of some examples of that. Exodus 17 and verse 14 okay, is one. Isaiah 30 and verse 8, telling the prophet, write what you see in a book. Isaiah 30 and verse 8. Jeremiah 30 verses 1 and 2. It's the same thing. What's interesting about these three verses and these commands from God is the writings were testaments of judgments against Israel. And what are we going to see in the book of Revelation? We're going to see that. But what John is doing is connecting this writing 
with the same validity as the Old Testament prophets. And he says to write and send it to the seven churches in Asia. This is the last slide, but those are the seven churches. Here's the question that I want you to think about going into next week. Why these seven churches? Because there were thousands of cities, and there were hundreds of churches all around. Why not the Church of Rome? Why not the Church of Jerusalem, Colossae, Philippi, Galatia, any of these guys? He could have picked any of them. He chose these seven. So think about that going into next week. Why did he choose these seven? Okay? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Any questions about anything that I don't remember? I just want to add one thing. Sure. In verses 5 and 6, uh -huh. where he goes unto him, this is a, this, he's going into praise and worship. Oh, so absolutely. Praise and thanksgiving. In fact, and he lists the five things why we are praising and worshiping the Lord. That might be on that sheet I gave you, too. This different worship. It may not be. It's, it's on a different sheet that I put together. I may not have printed it. But there's, there's several allusions to John's worship in there, and that is one of them. Absolutely. And then in verse 7, it's the theme of the entire book. Is listed in verse 7, which is Jesus oh, yes. coming back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, it says, every eye will see him. How is that possible? Just think about that in today's times. Just uh, this. I'm not going to go there very often, okay? But you think about it. Well, maybe, but, but I mean, if something comes down over Israel today, we're not going to see it from where we're standing. But with 24-hour news... Fox News will be there. Fair and balanced, you know they will be. Some point that that's an illusion to something that that's the only way it's even possible to be fulfilled. Now, again, I'm just throwing it. We're going to stick with the Bible and try not to get off into some of the weird tangents and stuff. But it is interesting. And he says, every eye will see him. How is that physically possible? Doesn't mean God can't do it. He certainly, certainly can. Lots of good stuff tonight, guys. Remember, please understand this. I'm telling you different ideas as they express themselves. Some of them I hold to, some of them I don't. Don't make mountains out of molehill on the Lord's day. We don't care. All we care is Jesus coming back.